0: The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of
1: perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truth. Toxicology. Asteroid seismology, Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically
0: engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hi and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we inject weird and wonderful science direct to your brain. I'm Lara Davis. In this edition of Diffusion, we'll look at would you do it with an android, bird babies, and free the internet. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe.
2: The One Laptop Per Child charity from MIT's Media Lab now has competition. The XO laptop was designed to help the world's poorest children. Nicholas Negroponte's XO laptop is ready to be ordered for Christmas on the internet in a two-for-one deal. The deal is that for $400, you buy one laptop for your child, and the second one goes to a child in the developing world. What was once the $100 laptop has become the $200 laptop for only $400. However, the smell of a new market for cheap, rugged wireless laptops for children has caught the attention of hungry corporations. Negroponte got a cheaper bid from AMD for the laptop's CPU. Intel have responded by bringing out their own cheap flash drive-based laptop for children, the Intel Classmate, at a recommended retail price of $400. Asus, A-S-U-S, have brought out their own cheap flash drive-based laptop, also at $400. The coincidence of pricing on all three laptops is hard to believe. Like the XO, both commercial laptops are small and light enough to fit in a pocket, and have no moving parts other than the keys and the hinges. Neither of the commercial laptops have the clever XO high contrast screen, which can be easily viewed outdoors, nor do they have the wireless meshing that allows the children to talk to each other and share any internet connection. The XO laptop hardware and software is supported by researchers and hackers around the world, and the project helps children in poverty get an education. I know which laptop I'd buy. 2,500 bamboo microscopes have brought biology into focus for children in India. In Delhi, the non-profit, non-government, social enterprise organisation Jodo Gayan have distributed microscopes to over a dozen schools around $4 per microscope. Jodo Gayan translates literally as linking knowledge. Their philosophy is to help children link their thoughts to their experiences through activity-based learning. To get children participating in science instead of just memorising facts, Jodo Gyan have also been distributing mathematical card games, board games, and sticky geometrical shapes for children to play with. They've led over 700 teacher training workshops in an alternative primary school for underprivileged students. Jodo Gyan has attracted orders from the United Nations Children's Fund for use in alternative learning centres. Jodo Gyan was founded by Dr Usha Menon. The microscopes are chipped, carved and fitted with 20x lenses on her roof. Ecological researcher Debal Deb studies rice grain surfaces with a bamboo microscope, which has caught the attention of children from nearby villages. Dozens of children stop by after school to see the intricate colours and patterns on a dragonfly wing, and the tiny details on flower petals. Participating in science doesn't have to be expensive. Three million dud silicon chips will be made into solar cells instead of being thrown away. Until now, if a silicon wafer came out of the factory wrong, the companies would put them in landfill to prevent rival corporations getting access to the secret circuits etched on their surface even though they didn't work. IBM announced that by washing the silicon wafers in water with an abrasive pad, they could remove the secret circuit patterns and then sell the expensive silicon to solar cell manufacturers. They estimate that with current technology, this could generate 135 megawatts of power per year. Refined silicon requires high temperatures and lots of energy to produce. The solar power industry is growing by 30% a year, and consumes as much silicon as the computer industry. The real difference will be made if the silicon in old mobile phones and computers is washed with water and an abrasive pad for recycling instead of being dumped in landfills. Currently, nobody has a plan for that.
0: Twenty years ago, who used the internet or knew what a GPS was? Technology is always evolving, getting better, faster, and smarter. But can you imagine a world that is so technologically advanced that robots could become companions? Jackie Peffer reports. This story is rated R for robots. Isaac
1: Asimov created the three laws of robotics, Fritz Lang's film Metropolis predicted a world run by robots, and the old TV show Inspector Gadget meshed man with metal to make a part robotic human. There's always been pretty futuristic ideas about the place of robots in society, But would you believe the idea that one day we could be able to have sex with a robot? David Levy from the Netherlands University has just completed his PhD on human-robot relationships. Levy believes that with the advances in robotics, by the year 2050, robots could be so lifelike that we may be able to have sex with them. And one day, marriages between humans and robots may even be legalised. Now just stop and think, would you have sex with a robot? What if you could program it to have all the things you've ever wanted in a partner? Would it be able to act like another human being? And would marrying a robot bring emotional satisfaction?
3: You look really pretty in that dress. Have I told you how beautiful you are?
1: Hugh Durrant-White is a professor of robotics at the University of Sydney. Hugh, how hard is it to program movement into a robot?
4: I think movement's very easy to program because uh, we're good at building, um, you know, motors and even artificial muscles and things like that. I think the hard bit in robotics is actually the other one, which is sensing. Um, so actually responding to what's in the environment, that's very tricky for a robot. So, you know, visual stimulus, uh, tactile stimulus, things like that, that's, that's quite a tricky problem.
1: So is it possible that, say, by 2050 we could have robots which function and move and react to people like a normal human being would?
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's reasonable. 2050, I'm pleased you said that and not 2010. <laughs> um, uh, there's certainly a lot of work going on now in what's called, um, you know, android robotics for want of a better word, where um, as opposed to the sort of robots you see in a, in a factory, um, people are building robots that look like people that have skin, uh, that have the sort of um motions in uh, for example something like the face the complexity of the face muscles that we have um, and that uh, to all intents and purposes look human and do indeed have some robotics in them the problem really is they get so much information from the visual sense, uh, from the tactile sense, so not just hands but skin and everything else and auditory sensing and so on that that's very hard to interpret in terms of a meaningful thing that's going on in the world. So you want a robot to respond to what it touches and sees and so on. And that's very tricky because if you just look around you now, there are so many colours and textures and shapes and shades and all these sorts of things. How do you really explain to a robot, for example, what a lemon is?
1: Taking that into account and all the difficulties you face there, is it plausible that you could program thoughts into a robot as well?
4: Uh, Thoughts is a... Different kind of thing, but but maybe let me just amplify some of one of the things I said there. So there's, there's certainly this very well known guy called Ishiguro in Japan who has made robots that look like his child, and also another one that makes that looks like his wife. And, um, you know, he can, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, push his wife and she'll respond very much like his own wife, if you see what I mean. So you can kind of do that uh, sort of thing. But whether you can really make it like in general is, is a lot harder. Now, you, you mentioned the word thought now, and I'll bring that in. When we think about in our head, one of our biggest problems is is what's called, you know, perception, which is, not just taking in all the sensor information, but coming up with a model in our brain about what's actually out there. Uh, And once we've got that model to then say, okay, if I do this and then if I do that, this will be the consequence uh, on the outside world. Do you see what I mean? And that really is... um, No one really even knows what the right question, the research questions are in that at all uh, yet. So we're a long way from that final sort of process where you can create thought. But I'll add one more comment to that, is that there was a very famous guy, Patrick Winston, he used to head the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, and he used to say, well, uh, whatever we don't know how to solve is called artificial intelligence, but when we know how to solve it, it's called an algorithm. That means we know it, we, we then it becomes an engineering problem. So I suspect thought and intelligence and all these things, in the end, we'll only understand once we've done
0: it. That was Jackie Pepper speaking with Hugh Durrant-White. Next up, Ian Wolfe talks with Lachlan Hardy about how to free the net.
2: So I'm talking to Lachlan Hardy, who's organising some wireless meshing networking in Sydney. So tell me, what's the plan?
3: I'm not sure we have a plan at, at, at this stage. The initial impetus was a closing keynote speech by Mark Pesci at Web Direction South this year. And his whole theme was the network will overcome and the network is not just hardware, it's, it's, it's people too. And he was talking about how principles around networks will uh, uh, route around obstacles and they interpret censorship and things as damage and they route around them. And the example he gave was Meraki mesh networking equipment. And I was a beta tester of that equipment and have been using it since May this year. Right. So I wrote a blog post telling everybody about it and then everybody said, "Well, where do we get it?"
2: So you're talking about a wireless networking system.
3: Yes, little Wi-Fi repeaters that talk to each other and establish a mesh of wireless networking and basically you can have, say you have 15 units in, you can drop 2 of them from the system and nobody will notice because they'll all keep talking to each other and the network will continue anyway.
2: So, what did you do after you were inspired by the talk?
3: So, I went and wrote a, my blog post uh, explaining my experience to other people, telling how easy it was to set them up, how to use mm. them, etc. And got lots of questions, lots of responses. People hit me up across a variety of mediums. And so, I, I wrote another blog post, respond exp, answering their questions and etc. Et, et and um, said, look, since so many people are keen and the mm. shipping is uh, significant. Mm. Um, I'm happy to do a bulk order. If people want to contact me, give me, you know, give me their orders, I'll, I'll put it in. So I recently ordered 26 of the indoor units and 5 of the outdoor units.
2: Right, so this is people around Australia that want to get into this.
3: I took orders for people in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. Mm-hmm. The Perth Posse uh, organised their own thing. So all these
2: people that are ordering them and have just had them all delivered... Mm. What is it that, that they can do with it that they couldn't do with an ordinary wireless internet connection?
3: Okay, so it, it depends on how many they've bought. I, I have three at home, and in fact, I, I bought one extra because I have the outdoor model now, and I want to try it out. So right. I, I, I now have four. Uh, and you can hook don't. that
2: up to an aerial?
3: Uh, it it come, They all come with their own aerials, um, but yes, you can, you can hook them up to external high-power, uh, high-gain yeah. antenna. So, uh, and... You know, I'm by no means a, a Wi-Fi or radio geek in any sense. I did six months of electrical engineering on radios, but that was very focused on a particular radio and not, not my scene, but the concept of this stuff is cool. And what you can do with one unit is they broadcast dual networks. So you can have, as the as the manager or owner of that network, mm-hmm. you can have your own WPA encrypted, nice, safe and secure network for your private use, you and your family, whoever else you want to allow on it. And you have have the public tier, they call them, which uh, by default, if you order the standard edition of these Meraki units, the SSID or the broadcast identification name for it is Free the Net.
2: So people can get free wireless internet access through Free the Net?
3: Correct. So somebody could be walking past your house, you have one unit plugged in, and they'll be walking past your house and they pull out their iPod Touch or whatever, their laptop, and they can... Get on your Wi-Fi for free, and the, the reason Meraki does this is that what they do is insert a tiny little toolbar across the top, which just has, uh, I'm assuming Google AdWords, actually, because they're funded by Google. So Sounds very um, likely. Yeah, so I'm thinking there's a lot of Google AdWords in there, but as the owner of the network, you can insert your own message to say, you know, in my case, it says, hey, go get some more of this stuff, like, you know, here's where to go find your own Meraki mesh equipment. So, the indoor units go what about three hundred meters it, it really does depend I mean it says it says up to five hundred uninterrupted, but you know that's what that's wireless people always say that, and frankly, for wireless wind is an interruption so i uh, I use two in my house we have a long townhouse in Arndale. Mm-hmm. it's like significantly lengthy, and the walls are very thick yes and I have one on the back window and one on the front window, and that covers the whole house with no worries and the backyard so they're um they're pretty solid the third one is kind of i turned out i didn't need it but eh, you know my partner recently pushed the one in her office in the front window mm-hmm. right against the window and in fact they come with they're so small and light they come with suction cups all oh, so right so you can put them on the window itself
2: Literally. and in fact that
3: is the recommended installation place because then you get the optimum exposure to the outside world to share and you're showing your, your, people your access there yeah yeah, I mean Fantastic. they're not actually likely to see them. They're they're really small units. They're what they're like a, a inch, inch, inch cross and about two inches long. So very they're very small, and they're only um, two centimeters high, sort of thing. They're, they're these, tiny little units.
2: And how these are what fifty dollars US?
3: Forty nine dollars US for an indoor unit. Ninety nine dollars US for an outdoor unit. And given the theme, I'm guessing the new solar units, which are not yet for consumer release, and uh, I don't have one either. Uh, I'm assuming they're going to be, a, a, you know, 149 or, or 199, something like that. Something to tack on there. Yeah.
2: So you could take these to a park and have a wireless hotspot.
3: You need to power them up. Right. Um, however, at, the, uh, at that keynote by Mark Pesci, uh, we are in an auditorium at uh, the Convention Centre in Sydney. And right. the, the wireless, as wireless always is at a conference, is always, you know, it's always debatable how, how good it's going to mm. be. But what, what he did in, in this case, and in, and in fact, in the auditoriums, they had turned it off so that people wouldn't be using their laptops in the, in the theatres. And in his session, though, he had turned it on because he brought in four of these mesh networks and he'd jerry-rigged them himself to run off batteries. And he pa- had them all plugged into battery packs and had one on, his, on the podium with him out the front. And he had the others placed around the room. And a friend of his was up the back with his laptop, which was plugged into the first Meraki unit, and then uh, the laptop was pl- also plugged into the phone. And he was using like an N95 or whatever, uh, you know, using a 3G connection. And so the whole room was on Wi-Fi based off that phone. So, so. so How many people
2: would have been able to connect?
3: Well, whole you room, know, auditorium. I mean, the whole room probably could have connected. But, you know, the speed obviously would have been negligible. But that's that's, it wasn't about... You know, we weren't trying to use Wi-Fi at the time. We were listening yes. to Mark. So, but what it was, it was what he proved the point was that you could plug it into a, a real next plug it into a solid pipe, and you know you can cover anything.
2: So you could be you could buy one of these, offer free internet access to your neighbourhood. Yes, and enjoy free internet access from anyone else who's doing the same thing.
3: Yes, and unlike some other projects like Fon, um, which is very popular in Europe. Although I don't believe it does mesh networking. The site doesn't say so, although someone t- tonight told me they do, but eh, I'm, I'm uncertain about that. Do. Yeah, I don't think they do either. Um, but the, the FON deal is in order to get the free access from other FON users, Fineros they call them, you need to be a Finero. Anybody else has to pay. Whereas with this system, anybody who can see the Wi-Fi gets on it for free.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. So if people want to go and read your blog, what's the URL?
3: It's lock stock dot com dot u uh, so it's l-a-c-h as in my name uh s-t-o-c-k dot com dot u terrific thanks for your time thank you very much
0: that was lachlan hardy of lockstock.com that's l-a-c-h-s-t-o-c-k dot com doing his bit to free the net You are listening to Diffusion Science Radio Broadcast on 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and podcast around the world by your favourite audio stream. Charles, I understand you've become a father. Or is that a mother?
5: Well, I became a sort of a parent to a baby bird. A month or so back, a nest appeared in a tree about five metres from my fourth floor balcony. I'd always had the vague impression that bird life happened with a certain amount of precision. You know, nest building, egg laying, squawking babies. First flight, with the chicks checking back into the nest each night, until one day they left the nest for good. All very straightforward, but it doesn't quite happen that way. Within just weeks of the nest appearing, it sprouted a couple of squawky-stalky beak heads, which grew into large, fluffy currawong chicks. Then, one night, there was a hell of a storm. High winds, lashings of rain and pelting hail. Looking out by torchlight through the fury, I could see branches being tossed violently to and fro, loose bark flailing around the tree and leaves flying through the air. Mother bird being pinged by hail, sitting on the nest, was not looking at all happy. However, peace and calm returned the following morning. There were twigs and leaves everywhere on the ground, but it was bliss in bird paradise. The branch was still, the nest was intact, and the chicks were safe. And indeed bliss it was, At least for the chicks. At this stage, they didn't seem to have any idea about the flying thing. But flying was what being a bird is all about. They got up, stood around on the edge of the nest, and sat down again and watched the world go by. And, as natural as you please, waited for attention. Maybe some more food. Maybe they'd have a little rest. Maybe they'd have a little stretch. No worries. Maybe check out the world again. It's not easy being a baby bird the Tennessee Bird Wolf by Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan came to mind. Take away the trees and the birds will have to sit upon the ground
4: All. and take away their wings and the birds will have to walk to get around and
3: take away the bird baths and dirty birds
5: Their and the birds will walk around and You'd think that all the sitting, then standing, stretching, then fluffing couldn't last. It must be only a matter of days before they got the motivation to fly. Mother Bird will surely throw them out. That's what birds do, right? But no, and here is the problem. There was no room left in the nest for Mother Bird. Mother Bird, not the chicks, was being pushed out and Mother Bird was still flying out and back, bringing increasing quantities of insects and berries. You'd also have thought that the first flight would have been a little bit more dignified as well. Maybe wake up, have breakfast, and after breakfast do the first flight thingy. Get in a bit of practice during the day and head back to the nest at night. But no again. Around 11 o'clock one night, there was a huge commotion of squawking and flapping, calling and general carry-on. I raced out to the balcony, nest but no mother, and only one chick. Following the sound of the calls, I soon found the other chick looking quite pathetic in the middle of the driveway, with mother birds swooping and calling, trying to get it to move. All to no avail. This wasn't at all good. The chick seemed well enough, nothing broken, bent or bleeding, just not happy, and if I left it there, a car could abruptly terminate its genetic franchise. I checked out The Wire's website. For those outside Australia... WISE is the Volunteer Wildlife Information and Rescue Service, and called their telephone line. Midnight wasn't really the best time for a volunteer organisation to launch a massive rescue mission for a bird that was essentially in good health, but their sight and the message on the telephone advice was to make sure it was safe, and that made sense. Blocking off the drive with wheelie bins and hastily written signs was a start, but those plans changed dramatically when I returned to discover a cat was about to cash in on an order of succulent baby carawang with drizzlings of fresh blood. A cardboard box and some careful coaxing saw the chick up against a wall, safely away from cars and cats. Somehow the sign, CAUTION, BABY BIRD, seemed appropriate for all of those involved. Car drivers, cats, mother bird, baby bird and myself. I'd sort out the rest in the morning. It was a quarter to three when I was awoken by flapping of wings and much scratching. Apparently the chick was tired of shadow cardboard, or maybe just not comfortable enough. A couple of old towels and relocation to the balcony resolved the problems, at least until daybreak. At first light I thought to check the nest. The other chick had gone too, but, with mother was nearby, perched precariously on a branch, every now and then almost losing balance only to regain composure with lots of frantic flapping but the chick in the box was less advanced. On release it was flopping around with major uncoordination, major tilt and wobble, and major inability to fly. As a passerine, that is, a bird of the perching order, it was particularly dodgy at perching. Wires returned my call that day. Apparently there was a further problem. Chicks can faff around on the ground for a week or so after leaving the nest, and they are astonishingly trusting. So if a cat, or dog, or fox, or snake, comes up to them, They'll quite happily open their mouths and look baby big eyes appealing to them, ready to be fed. Nights could be particularly bad. I just can't see how that is a good survival strategy in bird bliss paradise. For the next few days, I would take it out in the morning to a safe area in the grounds where there was also some shade and return it to shade towel and cardboard in the evening. Initially, I was concerned that the parents might have forgotten it. However, on the first day, within 30 seconds of going out, they appeared in the tree above. They were even quicker on subsequent days. One thing is for sure, this Karawong chick didn't like change very much. If it was in the box, it didn't like to get out. If it was out of the box, it didn't like to get in. And if it was standing near its favourite wall, well... On the first evening, the chick was particularly easy to find. It was sitting near the brick wall where I'd left it, ten hours earlier. Just checking out the bricks, I guess. The wall admiring happened on the following day too, and to some extent the next, but each day it became stronger, moved further and flapped when it wanted to move out of the way. Its directional stability improved markedly as well. Then one day I came home and the chick had disappeared. I checked under the bushes and around the various rocks, but it was nowhere to be found. Karawong chick had gone. I don't know where it went, but the fact that the parents didn't turn up when I went to collect it And the fact that there was no suspicious trace of feathers suggests that maybe the whole family was now happily airborne. It would have been nice, though, if it had sent me an email or an SMS to let me know that it was okay.
0: Amazing what a little bit of observation can do. That was Charles Willock, off with the birds. That's all from us for this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com or check out our website at www.diffusionradio.com where you can download the audio of our previous programs. Contributing to this program were Jackie Peffer, Ian Wolfe and Charles Willock. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney and syndicated nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Lara Davis. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more fascinating science next week on Diffusion Science Radio. We are the We
3: are to protect you. We are to protect you from the terrible We are the We are here to protect you.